0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. One of the themes of the podcast, unfortunately, is this is why we can't have nice things. And midday yesterday, when that D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals opinion came down and I had a chance to read it, I thought, okay, maybe we can have some good things, but I'm going to put an asterisk behind it. So I wanted to talk about that with my good friend Tom Nichols, professor emeritus at the Naval War College, now a staff writer at The Atlantic, author of The Atlantic Daily Newsletter books include the death of, oh, you know who he is. Tom, I was actually going to look up how many times you've been on the podcast, but I lost count <laughs> before I could get to the number. So welcome back on the podcast. Well, thank you, Charlie. It's good to be with you. This is one of those days we're standing in front of the fire hose, right? Because I mean, there's so much going on. We have the court decision on citizen Trump. We have the Ukraine and the border bill hanging fire. We have Rana Romney McDaniel thrown under the bus. We have Tucker Carlson doing his useful idiot routine with Vladimir Putin in Moscow and we have JD Vance being JD Vance. <sighs> JD Vance. Yeah, I just don't have enough energy to get to that right away. So can we start with Citizen Trump? Let's just start with the good stuff, okay? Because I there was a lot of there was a lot of griping and a lot of hand-wringing like where's the court of appeals? When are they coming down with? It? And it really turns out in the end that They were not dragging their feet. They were just getting it right. They were coming up with an airtight slam dunk of Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity. And it is a thing of constitutional beauty. Your thoughts about it. There's so many different aspects to touch on. I thought this unanimous decision by the court was definitive. And I don't think it could have been stronger in many ways. What do you think?
1: The thing I liked most about it, was that it was a ringing constitutional case, you know, ringing endorsement of the separation of powers and accountability and democracy. I mean, it's just it said everything that I would want it to say, but it said it in a way that you don't have to be a lawyer or an expert to understand.
0: And since I am neither you know, I appreciated that.
1: I'm not a lawyer and I'm certainly not a constitutional mm-hmm. expert, you know. Um, unless the Russian constitution, that that was my old bailiwick. But I read it and I thought, you know, you could take this and just send it to every American and they could read it and completely understand it. I mean, there were such great moments in it about the lunacy of Trump's argument that Well, you know, the other two branches. Yeah, I know. You know, branch two is supreme and, you know, the president's a king and he can never be held accountable. And, you know, with this very, again, very ringing endorsement of our constitutional principles, these three judges shot it down. And I wonder if they did it so effectively that the Supreme Court simply refuses to even hear this at this point.
0: Well, I think there's a real good chance, and I want to get to that because I think that's maybe the most important part of all of this, I and mean, there's so many parts, but we know what Donald Trump's strategy is, which is to delay, to delay, to delay, and he, I think he's been hoping that he could stretch this out, and the court did something, and I hope people stick around for this, that I think makes that much more difficult. So his defeat was more comprehensive than simply losing this case, but your point about the average person can understand this. Amazingly, Tom, it turns out that the president is not a king. And I love the fact that they use the term citizen Trump. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant, but any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. And then I love this line here. It would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying
1: those laws with impunity. That was the money shot. That was the money shot. I mean, that was the, that one jumped out at me too, because, you know, every time people defend Trump and in the convoluted ways that they do, that always comes back to me about, The one person who must take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And I always think of um, Lincoln in the habeas corpus matter when he says, are all the laws to go unobserved but one? That at some point when it all falls down, then, you know, we get into this game of which laws we're going to. And, of course, Lincoln was speaking out of desperation in wartime. And so I thought it was great for the appeals court to kind of call back to that to say, no, let's remember what the executive branch actually is charged with doing. And again, in a way that is sensible and sensible, that accords with the common sense of the average person. You know, it's like saying the only guy in town that doesn't have to follow the law is the mayor and the police chief you know. And
0: apparently it also uh, clears up the question about whether or not the president can uh, send SEAL Team 6 to murder a political opponent. Now, of course, Trump's out there saying, hey, if
1: I can't do that, then I can't be president. So he he's not taking this well. If I can't use SEAL Team 6 as, you know, my my personal murder squad, I mean, I thought this was America. What's the point? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did he say? It was like, this was like a country destroying decision.
0: Save presidential immunity. Okay. You and I have talked for many years now about the mind of Donald Trump, that reptilian instinct that he has. But I have to tell you that save presidential immunity is not the ringing political winner that he perhaps thinks it is. If he wants to die on that hill,
1: let him. You know, you're right. He has this, we both noticed it, right? This lizard brain. I mean, the one thing I've always said about him is that he is the dumbest human being ever to be president, but that he has a genius for marketing. He has a genius for putting his name on stuff and getting people to buy you know, crappy vodka and cheap steaks and, you know, all that other stuff. In this case, even the people that are inclined to support him may very well hear when they hear presidential immunity. It means save my ass legal. I'm above the law. Well, more than that, I have to be above the law because I did some pretty shady things. And if I'm not above the law, then I'm going to be in a hell of a mess. And it's your job, faithful cult members, to make sure that I can never be held legally accountable. We can't really argue about what's a good sell to his base, they'll take anything. I mean, he can sell them that the moon's made of green cheese. But I think for a lot of the people who might have been inclined to support him, or were on the fence about, is he really that dangerous? I mean, this really does come across as your duty as a citizen is to save me from the legal consequences of my own criming. Okay, so I, I know it's never
0: a good idea to read, you know, court decisions, but I just wanted to just highlight the key section here. At bottom, they write, Former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. Presidential immunity against federal indictment would mean that, as to the president, the Congress could not legislate, the executive could not prosecute, and the judiciary could not review. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter, which, by the way, is really what he's claiming. Carefully evaluation of these concerns leads us to conclude there is no functional justification for immunizing former presidents from federal prosecution in general or for immunizing former President Trump from the specific charges in this indictment. And so holding we act not in derogation of the separation of powers, but to maintain their proper balance. So again, this is a fundamental constitutional question. And nicely
1: written, by the way. As a former writing
0: teacher, let me just say, nicely written. it was really well written. I thought so too. Okay, so the question now, and this is an important one, is what happens now? Can Trump drag this out? Now, I think the assumption had been that Trump would do, and again, within his rights, that he would ask the court to review its own decision, which they're not going to change. Then he would ask for the Court of Appeals to rehear it en banc, which is all the judges. You have a three-judge panel that made this ruling. He could ask that. Delay, delay, delay. And then he will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, where he needs four votes to grant cert to take it up. People following me so far? So all these things delay. And the real key point here is that he just, whatever tactic he does to push this trial back is a win for him. If he pushes it back past the election, it could be, you know, an ultimate win for him. The judges on this court, and I'll talk with Ben Wittes about this tomorrow because Lawfare laid this out. One of the key things is they made that a lot harder. They basically said, you don't have forever to appeal this. You have until Monday. You have till Monday to appeal this. He can't go to the on-bank. Trump can only stop the issuance of the mandate by petitioning the Supreme Court for a stay pending a full application for cert, not by seeking rehearing. Okay, so a little bit of math here. I apologize in advance. You need four justices to grant cert, which is we will hear this case. It takes five justices to grant the stay to stop Judge Chutkin from going ahead. You know, it may seem like we're parsing, but that could be decisive because the stay actually could delay this case into the election or past the election. But if he doesn't get a stay, if the court looks at this and goes, you know what, we got enough shit to deal with, we're not dealing with this, then this mandate goes into effect
1: right away, and we're going to have a trial. Donald Trump is going to stand trial. Let's back up and point something out for folks that don't spend their lives following politics. There's no real constitutional issue here after that Court of Appeals decision. Well, I mean— You know, there is in the sense that Donald Trump believes that we should simply negate the Constitution, but there's no serious argument here. People should realize presidents already have a certain amount of immunity. It's kind of hard to sue a president for an official act. The president vetoes a bill that you don't like within his, you know, constitutional role as the chief executive and, you know, vetoes a piece of light. You can't like sue him because you didn't like the veto. So what Trump was saying is the constitution functionally doesn't exist. And I'm wondering, the nightmare scenario for me is that four justices know it and know this is crap. And they they go ahead and grant cert anyway, just to drag out the clock. But I wonder if after the way that that Court of Appeals decision was written. You know, let's try and be cheerful for a moment. You know, they all have their partisan beliefs, but on this, you know, this was two Democrats and one Republican, and they were unanimous on this. I imagine- A very
0: conservative Republican, by the way.
1: Yes. This is not a
0: squish conservative. She's well known. Okay, go ahead. Right.
1: So, you know, they may be sitting there saying, wow, how insanely partisan and in the tank for Donald Trump do we really want to look? Which is why my gut feeling is after this, what are they left with but to say, the appeals court said it all, we're not going to review this, we're not going to grant cert. That would be the honorable and legally sensible thing to do, but there's a part of me that worries that a couple of them are saying, yeah, you know, we just have to do this and help the guy out and get him past the election. But I, I hope that's not the case. We can talk about
0: the you know, argument that's going to take place tomorrow in front of the court on the 14th Amendment disqualification, the Colorado case. Justice Roberts just doesn't want to be in the room. They do not want to deal with this. They will do any you know, legal pretzeling they need to to find an off-ramp from this. So I personally believe that they should disqualify him, but I don't think they will. Okay, but so now they have these two things, the two things, and I think that not granting cert. You know, not taking this case up, dragging their feet on on the immunity case is the safe way for them. They're going to be thinking, how do we get out of this quagmire of shit, political shit? We just do not want to be in the middle of this. You know, take an off ramp on Colorado, leave the appeals court in, in place, because ultimately this has got to be the worst nightmare for Justice Roberts and even, even institutionalists. You know, look, there are two hardcore ideologues on that court. I mean, I could see Alito and Thomas who are basically saying, we have to save. We have to crash the plane into the mountain to save Donald Trump.
1: But that's two. And I think, you know, for them to take it says this fantastically rendered decision is bad somehow or needs review. And I think you're right, Charlie. I think the ripcord poll is to say, everything's been said. We're not going to take this up. If there is any concern about the legacy of the court, I mean, my God, to take this up and to let this completely lunatic theory of government dominate the Supreme Court's proceedings through a presidential election – Would really, I mean, I think even the conservatives have to recognize it. Sort of threatens the legitimacy of of the system because there's nothing to take up. I mean, the the appeals court was so clear that this is a complete nutball. If Donald Trump hadn't been a former president, and you know, this is the kind of letter you get from some, you know, from some crank somewhere in America who says, you know, the president shouldn't have complete godlike immunity for everything, but you have to take it seriously when it's a former president arguing it for himself. Going back to the beauty of the decision from the Court of Appeals, it's like it reminded you, no, you're not crazy. This is stupid. You know, this is ridiculous.
0: That's right. This is really, really done. And they said it in in respectful language, but it was definitive. Look, nobody in the court with the possible exception of, say, Alito and, and Thomas, wakes up and thinking, you know, you know what this court needs? You know what I need for my legacy? I need another Bush v. shit from Donald Trump. Bush v. Gore case yes. to deal with. I, I want to <laughs> jump into that. Okay, so let's move on. Okay. Because I thought that this was going to be the only story that we would be talking about today. But then, of course, we have the incredible shambolic House Republican show yesterday, the Failure Theater. I mean, this is kind of amazing. Look, the part of this is entertaining. I mean, like, who, who does not enjoy watching a clown car crash into a dumpster fire? I mean, right? It's You, you kind of want to like, <laughs> you know, the dysfunction is, is pretty music. On the other hand, as I said on Morning Joe this morning, unfortunately, the collateral damage is going to be immense, and it's going to last a long time. The collateral damage for Ukraine, for the Mideast, for the border, for our image in the world... Your thoughts watching this party, which simultaneously, I mean, for people who aren't glued to C-SPAN, they not only then fail with their bogus impeachment of, you know, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, by a couple of votes. By the way, they'll try it again next week, but it's still a sham trial. And Then the new speaker also then fails to pass the Israeli aid bill standalones. He had two embarrassing, catastrophic defeats in a row while they're in the process today of killing their own freaking border bill can't make this shit up
1: you know charlie for years you and i have had a friendly competition or a friendly um reminder to each other about which one of us is going to be the first to drop an f-bomb so this time i will be the first because i was watching this and i was thinking of a movie i really like called a history of violence Okay. With uh, Viggo Mortensen okay. and William Hurt. Okay. And William Hurt is this Irish mobster who has, you know, put out what he thinks is a very simple hit. And by the end of the movie, there's like bodies everywhere and there's blood <laughs> and his mansion is a shambles. And he's wandering around with a gun yelling, how do you fuck that up? All I think of the Republicans sort of, you know, running their hands through their hair and all these shell casings and, you know, all this damage and fire, and, you know, wandering around saying, how do you? It was a simple vote. You needed a majority of the members voting and you screwed it up. Mike Johnson is managing to make Kevin
0: McCarthy look like a great tactician. A right, strong right. and muscular speaker in comparison.
1: McCarthy is getting like Tip O'Neill status compared to this now. <laughs> but it shows you that, first of all, on a more serious note, I think it says within the GOP, they don't talk to each other. There's not one unified Republican Party. There's like four Republican parties inside the House at this point. Yeah, And each of them is a kind of mini caucus and they don't level with each other. Because there was once upon a time, Charlie, when you and I were Republicans, you know, one of the things Republicans were really good at was not self-owns like this one, that it was, you know, once the party decided to march in one direction, they didn't have a lot of backbencher revolts. They didn't have a lot of unexpected, you know, moments where votes fell apart. I mean, remember, we used to chuckle. No, no, we don't do that. That's Democrats that do that, you know, that go and get shanked. by Democrats their Democrats in disarray. Right. You know, they're the ones yeah. that go and get shanked by their own members on the floor. Even Tip O'Neill had his problems here and there. Pelosi, I think this is another case where we just have to say she was a really strong House leader. She was really good at counting votes and, you know, keeping people in line. Well, and that's being
0: underlined how effective she was, you know, with right. every passing right. day. Right. Because she had the same majority at one point.
1: Even if you didn't like what she was passing. Yeah. You know, even if you were her opponent, you had to step back and say, damn, she's kind of good at this. And so that's one lesson from it. The other is that most of this Republican Party that you saw at work yesterday, they don't care about policy. Issues don't matter. It's all performative. No interest
0: in actual governance, which, again, take the border. They've been telling us that there's this existential immediate crisis, right? We have finally have legislation. They get almost everything they want, and they're not interested. But what they are interested in is doing a sham show trial for Mayorkas, but then they can't even pull that off.
1: I mean, this is like going to Moscow and having – this is like vashinsky you know, putting Bukharin on the stand, and, and then, like, the judge and the tribunal acquits him and says, you know, Stalin went a little too far this time. <laughs> I mean, this should have been a railroading that they were planning. They cared about it. They wanted
0: it. Well, they shouldn't have done it. I mean, the fact that they have hardly any majority. Look, okay. so one of my favorite moments was uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene afterwards, basically complaining to reporters that Democrats tricked us because they had this sick guy (laughs) who we didn't think was going to come. And then they kept him. And then at the last minute they were watching the votes. And the last minute he came in and he voted, Al Green, what? Wait! He's a congressman and he voted. How dare I mean, they? What, Okay, Marjorie how dare they? like. Now I am going to make a prediction. Okay, I'm trying. Like, am I going to go with the better angels or the more realistic angel? Mm-hmm. I was quite surprised that my fellow cheesehead Mike Gallagher was one of the key people who uh, voted against this impeachment, and he made a very principled statement about how this was a misuse of impeachment power. I was very surprised because Mike Gallagher is one of the many, many, many Republicans who. Uh, Uh, It's been part of that, what Jonah Goldberg has described accurately as the invasion of the body snatchers, or as Ionesco would have said, turned into a rhinoceros, but he did the right thing. So kudos to him. I was surprised by that, but I'm sorry, Tom, he's going to cave. You know why I'm saying he's going to cave next week? Because that has to be the default setting that we've learned from the last seven or eight years. Anytime we're asking the question, will Republicans hold the line, or will they cave? What's the always the answer,
1: Tom? What's, what, what, what always happens? And that's my prediction. It's careerism and opportunism. And you know, on this one, I think you could make the argument that, first of all, Trump didn't get deeply involved in the Mayorkas thing, and that you could at least kind of bank a principled vote here without really hurting yourself. I don't know. They're going to be all over his ass. Just watch. Okay, but then he can cave on the border legislation and say it wasn't enough. Yeah, it's not hard enough. But that's what I mean about there's no way you cannot negotiate with an opponent who doesn't want anything. Right. See, that's the key thing.
0: Okay, what do you want? We want this. Democrats get nothing out of this bill. And by the way, I mean, if you want to be really, really cynical about it, Biden gets kind of the best of all possible worlds. He, looks like he's addressing the issue he gets republicans to own the issue without having to sign a bill that would have antagonized people on his side of the aisle there would have been a lot of progressives you know who would have been outraged by that so now he's got the talking point he's got the issue but mike johnson you look at him you look at the republicans the way they've handled this and i mean this is really three-dimensional chess for idiots i mean it's like we're being so clever in our rank cynicism But as entertaining as I find this, and I do find this highly entertaining, I have to say that the real world consequences are horrible. And you correct me if you think I'm being too dark here. What we are about to do to Ukraine is going to be an historic break in American faith. Now, it's not won't be the first time this has happened, but Vladimir Putin is winning a victory in the American political world that he was unable to obtain on the battlefield until now. And as a direct result, these games, these fuckers are playing. Ukrainians are dying. More Ukrainians will die. And the consequences of Vladimir Putin rolling to victory in Ukraine are so grave and we will live with them for so long. And it comes down to one thing. It comes down to a Republican Party that is so enthralled with Donald Trump that they've abandoned
1: everything that even they thought six months ago. I would even say it's not that they're enthralled with Donald Trump. It's that they're enthralled with living in Washington and keeping their jobs. They don't want to go home. It's so sad to watch, you know, Stefanic and Vance and Holly and others and realize that, you know, there's this undertone of, hey, I'm not going back to Missouri. I'm not going back to upstate New York, and I think that that's a big part of it. Yeah, I don't think any of them have a deep enough commitment to any principle to even be in favor of Russia. That requires a decision, right? I mean, this is more like instant oppositional defiance disorder. Well, what you know, what would be good for Biden? Would aid for Ukraine help Biden? You know, if Ukrainians start winning, well, then we can't do it. Biden wants it, so we're not going to do it. And I think you're lowballing how big a betrayal this is. Because I also think that it's a betrayal that could eventually, you know, down the line, four, five, six years. I mean, it could pull us into war in Europe. Oh, I I think so. I mean, this is a betrayal of
0: our, not just of Ukraine, but of our allies. It raises questions about our commitment to NATO, which will then be underlined even more dramatically if Donald Trump becomes the president of the United States. It emboldens the Chinese. You don't think that President Xi is watching this and thinking,
1: you know what? Maybe I'm kind of hungry
0: for a little bit of uh, Taiwan.
1: There is so much that unravels from this one stupid, cowardly, opportunistic, morally vacuous moment that the Republicans are in, that it is existentially chilling to think it through. Not only do you have to worry about now about what happens in Asia, but I think – One of the things Putin has been trying to prove for years is that NATO is a paper tiger, that NATO doesn't really matter. And if he wins in Ukraine, I could see him saying, and now I'm going to take a small chunk of one of the Baltic states where there's a lot of Russian speakers, and I'm going to replay the Crimea thing. And because he doesn't understand that NATO is real, Article 5 is real, that the biggest military Alliance in the history of humanity will take it seriously, you know. I think we could end up in a global disaster. And for what? I feel like the guy at the end of Band of Brothers, remember the guy who stands up in the truck and he starts yelling at the Nazis. I feel like I'm I'm yelling that at so many of these people. For what? For what? You You servile goons. You know, what for what are we doing here? I said this back in 2016, you win, you have unified Republican government, Donald Trump is president, both chambers are controlled by Republicans. What do you want? And I can't tell you how many people, you know, would shrug. And basically the answer was, well, as long as you're mad, mission accomplished. People may think you're exaggerating. I have to tell you, as being part of this,
0: I think that's actually true. What do you want? I want us to be in power, not you in, in power. Okay, so you use the term morally vacuous before, which is a great segue either into discussing J.D. Vance or Tucker Carlson. Why don't
1: you choose? Who do you want to go with first? You know, J.D. Vance's moral vacuity is now just a matter of, you know, ongoing record. I mean, I think what's interesting about Tucker is that he's combined that. I mean, J.D. Vance has got what he wants for now, right? He's in the Senate. He's got the office. He's got the driver. He wants to be VP, really bad. Now he's just kind of doing fan Uh, service, right? Customer service. Oh no, no, no. Really? Go ahead. No, he's running for vice president.
0: He's running for vice president. That's his Stefanik. Well, yes. And what they're doing is they're in competition who can be the most slavishly loyal, who can mimic the same words. But I thought that when J.D. Vance Went on ABC and started suggesting that you know presidents can defy the U.S. Supreme Court. Remember, you know when Andrew Jackson, you know, wanted to uh, you know begin the genocide of Indians. You know, he said Justice Marshall has made his opinion now let him enforce it. Okay, that may be that little cloud on the horizon, Tom, but you and I both know how that comes. And a guy like Donald Trump, you know, let's say he loses in the Supreme Court, how long will it take MAGA to go? Yeah, exactly. Why should we follow
1: Justice Roberts's ruled? Now, let him enforce it. So that's dangerous. So I'm taken about JD Vance. His vacuousness is dangerous because he is a sitting senator. You know, maybe I've just gotten numb to it because it's his metamorphosis from, you know, sort of, I'm the kid from the tough town that's going to say these hard moral truths. And I'm going to refer to Trump as, you know, cultural heroine and bad for my people to this thing he's turned into now, this kind of parody, this kind of caricature of himself. Just before we went on, I tweeted something about, I said, Somebody made a, had a picture of Stefanik and Vance and saying, these guys have, you know, sold their souls. And I said there was actually a Kolchak the Night Stalker episode about a senator who sold his soul. And it wasn't as over the top as this. As what's actually happening in Washington right now. <laughs> like, art couldn't approach life at that point. Okay, let me just give you a, l- a little digression
0: about why I, I worry so much about what J.D. Vance is now saying about ignoring the Supreme Court. Because – and again it's it's the analogy of the little cloud on the, on the horizon because I remember pretty much the exact moment that I first heard in late 2020 after the election that crazy Paul Gosar remember Paul Gosar you know one of the dumbest members of Congress ever still in office was behind a lawsuit that was and I'm you know glossing over some of the details obviously but put in a lawsuit saying that you know the vice president can actually refuse to count these electoral votes on January 6th And everybody thought it was a joke. I remember I thought it was a joke. I didn't take it seriously at all. But now think where that idea, which seemed so fringe at that point, think of the consequences now for January 6th and the big lie to the moment we're in right now. Okay, so let's talk about Tucker Carlson. Donald Trump is Vladimir Putin's most valuable, useful idiot. Let's stipulate that, okay? But Tucker Carlson, going to Moscow to suck up to Vladimir Putin. And while he's there, suggesting that, well, if Western journalists had done this sort of thing, when there are Western journalists who are actually in Vladimir Putin's prisons for trying to do the kind of honest reporting that Tucker Carlson is
1: no longer capable of doing. Evan Gershkovich is a Russian-speaking, on-the-ground... Get the story firsthand, has been living there, works for the Wall Street Journal, not exactly a, you know, raving lefty rag. And he's, you know, been in prison for months. And by the way, Tucker Carlson, well, I'm a journalist. No, you're not. I mean, this is why when we started talking about Vance and, and Carlson, you know, the thing that I think really defines Carlson is his needy ambitiousness. That, you know, he has to be, and this is a guy who started his career saying, I'm going to be the next George Will. I wear bow ties. I write serious conservative articles and has now turned into this kind of pathetic propagandist who swears that he's a journalist. I mean, it's really something. To see a horrifying transformation. Mm. Again, people that knew him back in the day say he was was never that nice of a guy, but at least in a public persona, to go from, you know, a moderate conservative to one of Putin's scribes is quite something. Um, but there are Russian journalists who have had to flee Russia and are living in the West who can't go back because they won't just go to jail. They'll be killed. Right. Now, if Carlson asks Putin about that and tries to get Gurskovich out and puts him on the spot, good. I'll applaud Tucker Carlson for using his in with Moscow. I don't think that's going to happen, but I hope it does. But the fact that you would go over there because there's no way to get there. And I'm sorry, I know I'm going on now I'm doing my Russia head thing, but there's no way to go over there without a whole bunch of preconditions. Oh, yeah. the Russians just don't do things that way this is why people never understood what was going on with Edward Snowden they don't probably don't understand what's going on with Carlson you don't just show up in Moscow you don't just go get a visa and hop a flight to Domodiedevo if you're coming, they know you're coming and deals have already been worked out and I'm, I'm sure that was the same with Snowden and I'm sure it's the same with Carlson and it's really obscene when you think that one of Carlson's own fellow citizens um, well, a few of Carlson's fellow citizens let's not forget Paul Whalen and others who are in jail and trumped up charges let's say charges that cannot be decided in a russian court and that have been gigantic sentences that are clearly political statements so you know for carlson to do this just and then to have the balls to have the pure brass to say well i'm a real journalist and i'm just doing this because western journalists won't no tucker Western journalists don't do it because they tried to and they're in jail and Russian journalists can't do it because they're over here trying not to get killed.
0: Well, okay, so I'm gonna beat my horse one more time here because um, you know I remember uh, shortly after the Russian invasion of of Ukraine, the public opinion polls were showing that Republican, the rank and file Republicans were overwhelmingly um, in favor of our aid to Ukraine, were supportive of Ukraine, were opposed to Russia. And yet there was still Donald Trump out there. And I remember at the time thinking, don't look at the numbers. Don't listen to the leadership. What's going on with the ID of the right wing? What's happening in the entertainment wing? So Tucker Carlson seemed like an outlier, and is still kind of an outlier, sucking up to Vladimir Putin. But now look where the Republican Party is. Where is the leadership of the Republican Party? You'd like to think that it's the grown-ups, you know, who were saying we will we will not abandon Ukraine. But the modern Republican Party. You just know, and again, this is true over and over again, you have to take those ideas seriously. You have to understand that Donald Trump is not always leading the band. He's sometimes seeing where the band is going, and then he tries to get out there in front. This is just crucial to understand about these guys. Should we do a slow trombone for Rana McDaniel, Romney?
1: Rami, Rami, <laughs> well, Ruk- let's add one more thing about the adults in the, in the Republican Party because okay. Ukraine and Israel could have been funded through the border deal That a couple of grownups in the Senate worked out, because the Senate, I think, is always the more responsible bunch. Um, That's why we have a Senate. And once again, the Republicans can't take yes for an answer. You ask them what they want, and what they want is whatever, the opposite of whatever they think you want.
0: Yeah. Well, that's true. So not the most important story of the day. Ronna McDaniel, who sold everything. I mean, even gave up her name. Gave up her name. I mean, really, you want to say, in the terms of the competition, you know, how will I abase myself? Most people don't actually have to, like, okay, I won't mention that I'm related to the Romney family. But you knew she was dead the moment that Donald Trump withdrew the favor of heaven. So it looks like she is out. And so now the harrowing of the RNC will continue apace. And I think the smart money ought to be on some kind of Trump loyalist election denier. In fact, if you are not an election denier, if you do not think that the January 6th rioters are hostages, you have no chance to get that job. So, you know, by process of elimination, you know, it's going to be someone like that.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting that one of the things this tells us about the modern Republican Party is it hasn't internalized being a national minority. And this was this is just amazing because in twenty sixteen, when Republicans would complain that, you know, oh, we're frozen out and the culture hate. I'm like, look, the numbers say that Republicans have a majority of the elected seats across this country. You are the majority party. But the idea that they could then lose elections is now so alien to them. Yeah, right. If we lose, it's catastrophic and it must be because of cheating.
0: You're right. But I, let me play with another idea here that letting the, the other side get into power is so catastrophic that we don't care whether there was cheating or not. The allegations of cheating are pretextual, they, it is a pretext. So, this is one of the reasons why, with the big lie, it's like you can refute this lie. Well, this didn't happen in Detroit. This didn't happen here. This didn't happen here. Look what the evidence actually says. And it doesn't matter because they will always shift it because ultimately they didn't really believe that there was cheating. What they really believe is that they have an entitlement to power because the other side is so loathsome and dangerous that they must be kept out no matter what, no matter
1: what it takes. These are two delusions that mesh well. You're right. It's now power by any means necessary, which, of course, is undemocratic, anti-constitutional, anti-American. But there's a comforting myth behind it of we really are the real Americans, the real majority, the real people. You know, this is a classic authoritarian and even fascist belief that there is a real people, that the nation has a real people and that everybody else is just, dare we say, vermin. I mean, Ronald Reagan leaves office talking about the importance of immigration and the American idea and shutting city on the hill. And now we have this Republican Party that says that basically, you know, we are a, a hardcore of anti-democratic cranks who refuse to lose an election because only we understand what's best for the country and our opponents are criminals and communists and, you know –
0: This point about the real people, that these are the real Americans, and then there's this alien presence out there that is trying to take our country away from, this is visceral. This is very real. This is very, very
1: real. It's growing among people who don't spend a lot of time among their fellow Americans or among those who are different from them. Part of that big sort, it's easy now to avoid being
0: around those other Americans. It is. We've had this massive demographic sort, and then we, of course, we now live in our own silos. So it's it's easier now than ever before
1: to not engage with them. Especially if you choose to, and that your pipeline to reality is is your television and your computer screen. Yeah. This is the, the, the inevitable, not the inevitable, but, but a likely outcome of years of the bowling alone problem of people, you know, not moving to places because they don't like the political environment in one place as opposed to another, but it's incredibly exceedingly dangerous. Uh, but I just want to add, you know, that Charlie, that, uh, I have no sad trombone to play for Ronna McDaniel. I think, you know, she will vanish now and into an obscurity that she deserves because... Richly deserves. Richly deserves. I mean, it just was incredible what a kind of a moral nullity she was. I mean, she made Reince Priebus seemed you know, like uh, an old iron-fisted party boss by comparison. I mean, the RNC became an appendage of Donald Trump. But I think the other thing that they're going to look for is not just an election denier, but someone who is going to turn the considerable financial resources of the Republican Party to Donald Trump's personal use. Oh, absolutely. Including paying legal bills and perhaps settlements. Legal bills, you know, all of that stuff so that the party will function basically as a support system for Donald Trump rather than, I mean, it's one more chapter in the Republicans ceasing to function as a political party. It is. And I think there are more chapters
0: yet to come. And hopefully you and I can talk about them in some different form. But I i wanted to thank you, Tom. You know, as we were planning this, uh, this final week, you know, i I told our fantastic producer kitty cooper i said you know let's let's get in some of our our mainstays and i don't know anybody who is more of a mainstay to this podcast than you have been from the very very beginning and and i have to say and i'm not exaggerating that in this very stressful period a period of isolation it has been a lifeline to me to be able to sit here and talk with someone like you and i appreciate not only your insight but your friendship, your advice, and they mean a great deal to me, Tom. And I hope you, you understand that. And by the way, you once said to me the most flattering thing any podcast guest has ever said, which is you and I were at a bar together once, actually in person, which is weird. And you said that when we do the podcast, sometimes you forget we're on the podcast because we're just talking to each other. And I thought, wow, that is the, that's that moment where you don't even think that there's other people out there. And you and I have had that relationship. And I'm very, very grateful for it, Tom.
1: Well, you know that I I feel the same way, Charlie, and I wanted to tell you one of the things that I found most important about our friendship was the way it began. Because when the Never Trump movement began, when we were all, you know, guys like me, right? Um, I was not in the political world. I was a professor, um, kind of occasional gadfly publish a op-ed here and there but I was a you know lifelong republican and worked in washington for a republican and all of that when the time started to come to say you know my god this is really going to happen what am i going to do you were one of the people where the price you were willing to pay because i think this is something people don't understand that a lot of prominent conservatives not people like me yeah i got you know people threatened to fire me and i got death threats and all that stuff but that you know the the people who were mainstays of the conservative movement really paid a price professionally personally you know in every way and it was inspiring because it was you were one of the people where i could look and say okay i'm not crazy we're not the crazy ones you know like this sensible guy from from Wisconsin this right winger you know this guy who's very far on the right and and in some ways you know you were on some issues you were further the right than I was. We, we would have had disagreements about those things, but I was able to hear you Thank and you watch so you as you did these things and took these chances. And I could say, I'm not crazy. This is the right thing to do. There are sensible, conservative people, very conservative people who are not going to do this, who are not going to get on this train. And Charlie, I can't tell you for a lot of us, you know, who were coming to the never Trump realization. And, you know, back in the day that was really important to have examples of sensible guys like you saying, we don't have to do this. And in fact, we shouldn't do this and it's the, and it's the wrong thing to do. And I want to thank you for that, Charlie, because over the years, you know, maybe we've played the same role for each other, but I feel the same way about you that every now and then I come on here and we talk and I go, yeah, right. Yeah. We're not crazy. This is actually a sensible thing because I think the attacks on the never Trumpers in those years really were kind of gaslighting that you just don't understand that it's not going to be like that. We turned out to be more right than we knew, sadly. And I'm glad that we maintained this kind of, you know, this kind of circle of sanity Circle that I think was really important for helping all of us stay, you know, stay on on the right path. And I wanted to thank you for that and for this show, Charlie, because that was an important part of it. Well, thank you so much. The circle of sanity.
0: I just think that is so important. And I wanted to reiterate that, you know, given how frustrating and um, disconcerting. And soul crushing in the last you know, seven years has been for some of us to be able to realize that we're not alone, which is why I think there's a tremendous appetite for a community. What happens is, is that you know, one by one, people get picked off because they realize, okay, I would be willing to take a stand, but I'm not going to go off the cliff by myself. Well, um, we're not going off a cliff, but you're not alone. You're not the crazy ones. And I think that that's very, very important. I think that's going to continue. Whatever happens, whether we're in the twilight or whether we're like at the new dawn, of the restoration, don't be ground down by it, because it is so easy. And I think these personal ties, these personal connections, and this is what I'm really grateful for. You know, since uh, 2016, when I left the radio, the number of people that i have met now and been able to establish relationships with that i never would have encountered before and then we've had these conversations that i don't think we ever would have had um has been a good thing has been a valuable thing i'm grateful for that opportunity although horrified by what created that opportunity if you if you (laughs) understand so thank you so much tom and i think we all reorganized ourselves and rediscovered what's important charlie we rediscovered and we rethought about what, what it was. I mean, that that's part of that clarifying moment. What do we really want? What is really valuable to us? And you sorted it out. What do we believe in? Other people had very, very different answers. So Tom, see you around very soon. Thank you for everything, Charlie. And for all of you, I think you know that coming Monday, In This Seat, will be my colleague, Tim Miller, who's going to be taking over the Daily Podcast. And I don't need to introduce Tim to you. He is a supremely talented individual. And I think he's going to have a lot of fun here. And um, as you know, he's got more than a few hot takes. So Tim Miller will be taking over the podcast on Monday morning. I'm going to be back for one last show on Friday. So stick around for that.